Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Infosys Knowledge Institute's podcast on all things AI, the AI interrogator. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and my guest today is Clem McGlynn, who's a professor of law at Durham University in the northeast of England. She's also an expert on shaping criminal law around pornography and has an interest in discussing crimes and violence against women. Of course, AI has been a very big focus of her work. Claire, thank you very much for joining us today. And I don't think I've ever said this before in my work at Infosys, but tell us about Taylor Swift. Yes, I've been very busy over the last few days, as have many people in our field, trying to get to grips with the impact of what's happened to Taylor Swift. So for those of you who may not know, Taylor Swift, there were some AI-generated pornographic images of her made without her consent that were distributed, we think, from Reddit onto X, formerly Twitter. And at one count, around 47 million people had viewed these deepfake pornographic videos. So it's been a real wake-up call, I think, for many people to realise what deepfake porn is, how harmful the abuse is, and we're now trying to think of the ways forward that we can use this it sounds terrible, but use this example to try to help protect and free other women and girls who may be facing this. So what does this mean for policymakers? I mean, in terms both of specific problems with what's happened to Taylor Swift in this past few weeks, but also more broadly, you know, the impact of AI on deep fakes and the ease with which people can create these images, harmful images. And, you know, where's the law on this? So we've known about what we now call deepfake porn or deepfake abuse for many years, since about 2017 when it first was starting to be used. So it's not a new phenomenon. And actually, deepfake porn had been made of Taylor Swift many, many years ago. But what is new is the amount of times it's been viewed and how fast it was distributed. And now, as we all know, with chat GPT and all other forms of AI, it's so easy to make these images and videos now. This is why it's now an exponential problem and a real crisis. So for policymakers, I think this needs to be a wake-up call. It's an urgent call for action because many of us, like myself and many others, have been talking about the problems of image-based abuse, of which deepfake pornography is an example, for many, many years. But nobody's really been listening. For example, in the United Kingdom last year when we had an AI summit, the threats were existential threats about all sorts of things, but the everyday threat is to women and girls. So policymakers, I think, need to take action on three different levels, the criminal law, the civil law, and we need to take steps to better regulate the platforms. What does that mean in terms of you know, actual steps? How would we regulate the platforms? So what we need to do with the platforms is, for example, there's regulations like the Online Safety Act in the United Kingdom, the Digital Services Act in the European Union, which are framed around trying to get these platforms to do risk assessments for the harms on those platforms and then take steps to mitigate those risks. Now, that means they need to put in place systems and processes to reduce the harms on their platforms. So we need to be making them take better steps to reduce the prevalence of something like deepfake pornography 
and when it does come online, to remove it swiftly. And I'm afraid the Taylor Swift example with X shows that neither of those mechanisms were in place. Neither the means to prevent the upload or viral distribution, nor the means to get the swiftly taken down and blocked. So that's what we need to get the regulators to make the platforms do, because frankly, the platforms aren't doing it on their own at the moment. Would you trust anybody to do this well at the moment? I mean, the platforms, the regulators? I'm not overly optimistic at the moment, unfortunately. Certainly with the platforms, they've been marking their own homework for many years and not very effectively, which is why we're now in this situation. Maybe if platforms had taken action, you know, many years ago when this was developing, we wouldn't be in this space now. In terms of the regulators, I'm also slightly concerned. In the UK context, the regulator Ofcom is consulting at the moment on its guidance that will underpin the Online Safety Act. And at the moment, that guidance, especially around these issues, is relatively weak and it's very minimalist. It's rather about reinforcing the status quo and it's not necessarily taking a systems approach to these issues. Rather, it's dealing with it as individual pieces of content. So I'm not overly optimistic at the moment. So a kind of a -a whack-a-mole approach, responding to each threat in a reactive way. Unfortunately, that's exactly the approach that Ofcom's guidance at the moment is taking around issues like, you know, image-based abuse, deepfake porn and other actions, not the focus on the systems. So, for example, with deepfake pornography and search engines, you can type deepfake porn into Google and it brings up the most popular deepfake porn websites, which are receiving about 14 million hits a month. What kind of systemic steps then should regulators be taking? Because, you know, the rise of AI has really changed the landscape, hasn't it? It has changed the landscape, although it's not that it's it's a surprise. You know, as I say, we've known about this for many years. It's just that it's now even easier to use. So I guess that's looking backwards, though. They should have done something earlier. What can we actually do now? And this is why we need to focus on the systems and the processes. You know, they could be developing the mechanisms to reduce the prevalence and to reduce the spread. Some of that is about the algorithms they're using. We know that some of these algorithms obviously promote a hate more often. They promote the extreme and they promote the pornographic or the sexually explicit. So we could be getting them to take steps like that. In relation to search engines, they should be downranking or delisting this sort of what I would call illegal and harmful content, which they're not doing at the moment. I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a moment because I'm sure certainly um, the platforms will say it is really hard to do good content moderation at scale. They're using AI themselves to do some of this content moderation. Do you think that's a fair response? I'm sure it's complicated, but I think they have the time, the resources, the money and the expertise to do it better. And if they were prioritising reducing harm, reducing violence against women and girls online, they would be able to come up with some faster, swifter, better mechanisms to do it. In general, I mean, before the Taylor Swift story, I've been rather encouraged, actually, by the way there's been a clear effort to get out in front of the ethics of AI and to do it better than we did with social media. Do you think I'm over-optimistic there? 
I mean, at one level, of course, you're right. There is a lot of international discussion around the ethics of AI, discussion about multilateral agreements. And maybe we did not have that at all at the beginning of social media. But what I see, if I think about, I mean, my areas are around particularly online violence against women and girls. If I think about the trajectory of that, the prevalence of that, I'm not convinced yet that these ethics that we're talking about around AI are focusing enough on actually taking the action that's necessary to reduce those types of harms. So yeah, we might be discussing it, which is a start. Are we actually going to see results? Is it actually going to make a difference? I don't know. How would we improve that? I mean, certainly, you know, new laws take time to be formed, the policy, the scoping, the getting it through the parliamentary bodies. What could we do in the meantime? Well, platforms themselves could be taking action, I guess, in the meantime. They shouldn't need to have to wait for regulators or national or international campaigns to actually act. So they could do things like that. So even just for example, I mean, obviously, X and Twitter's trust and safety work and content moderation is not what it once was, shall we say. I've given another example of what Google could be doing to reduce the facilitation and encouragement of deepfake abuse. These are simple steps in some ways that they could be taking right now. So I think though the bigger issue, to be honest, if I'm talking about my field around online abuse of women and girls, it is a bigger, broader problem. You know, women and girls face inequality in many areas of their life. So in many ways, it shouldn't be a surprise that it's not prioritised in the AI field because it's not prioritised in many, many areas and walks of life. So in that sense, the AI is no different from other fields of law, politics, etc. And it does just mean, I guess, at a bigger level, it's a general fight against inequality and discrimination. And AI is part of that. But the AI is what's making it worse because, of course, we're talking about deepfake part, but we know about the discrimination and inherent in an awful lot of AI, which impacts on minority groups and women as well. Are you working on any new laws at the moment? Yes. <laughs> of course, as a professor of law, I might say that anyway. Law, to me, it's the foundation on which both our societal norms and what's acceptable and what's not is based. So, for example, around deepfake pornography and AI, there needs to be stronger criminal sanctions to make sure that it is an offence to distribute intimate images without consent. That is in some countries, but not, not in all. I think it's really important that we have civil rights for victims. So civil rights of redress to get material taken down uh, against platforms and individuals to get material deleted and to get redress. And then I think it's the regulatory laws that we need to put in place to monitor the work of the platforms. So it's across each of those levels. And in most countries, there's some element of, of one or two of those parts of the overall package, but very few have got the whole package, in essence. And what about existing laws, Claire? I mean, one of the things that we often sort of see more generally when we're talking about we need more laws, we, we need more regulation, is the response, but we've already got laws. Do we just need to enforce those better? Do we need to rethink those? Well, in the case of emerging technology, including the likes of AI and deepfakes, no, we don't have the laws, basically, because even if you think about deepfake pornography, there are laws in many countries, including many states of the US, that have criminalised the distribution of intimate images, 
but many of those laws did not cover the AI-generated images. So the existing laws just were inadequate. It is the case that technically in most countries you'd be able to find a law, say, on harassment or on malicious communications that might cover some of these instances. That is true. But A, nobody knows about those laws. B, the police don't know about those laws. And they're often therefore very difficult to enforce, which is why it is much better to have some specific regulations that directly cover these new and emerging forms of abuse. Isn't that a challenge in how we draft them as well, to think about not only the forms of abuse and, and the technologies that we know that exist, but also to frame them in a way that actually has broader scope going forward? It is a real challenge for, for law, but it's not insurmountable. And the thing I would say looking forward is that we know that technology will be developed and will be used to abuse minority groups, LGBT groups, women and girls. It just will be. So we need to craft those laws now, knowing that there will be new technology and it will be used in that sort of way. So it is possible to do. Different countries have different sorts of approaches to legislation. There are some countries that have broader provisions. So a country like Sweden, which has laws against sexual intrusion, for example, which has a broader impact and then it's developed and is flexible. In England and Wales, for example, it's a very pedantic approach to drafting, which is why you then come up against problems. You know, the law didn't cover upskirting, the law didn't cover downblousing, the law didn't cover deepfake porn, because each time there's just a small incremental change. So it varies across countries, but it's not beyond our competence to draft laws that are forward thinking and will cover the harms in the future if we just think about it. And have we got the right stakeholders involved in this process? Sometimes and sometimes not. I think that depends. If you're talking about uh, you know, platform regulation, often in countries there is some stakeholder engagement. But So if I think about the violence against women and girls sector, but you know, you're faced with multi-million pound lobbying from large tech firms. So that's the imbalance you have. Most legislatures nowadays will try and consult and engage with those stakeholders. But it's an issue of what capacity do they actually have? I mean, if we think of Ofcom, the regulator in the UK, consulting at the moment on guidance under the Online Safety Act, it runs to over a thousand pages. And a lot of it is fiendishly technical. So how are you supposed to engage with that unless you are employing large armies of lawyers and what have you to mine through the detail? It's very difficult. So there's an imbalance there. Yes, and I suppose also it's often this, the voices that shout loudest get heard. I mean, I'm thinking about the online safety bill when that was going through. There's such a morass of stakeholders there and the weight given to some stakeholders versus others and people who've got the ability to lobby the contacts. You know, it really mitigates against the people who possibly get to suffer the most harm. And I think that's right. And it was a real challenge in the European Union as well. We know that the millions that were spent on lobbying around the Digital Services Act. So the problem I have with it in many ways, and in legislative changes is often the case, you're reliant on the voices of some victims to really put their heads above the parapet and be really determined to speak out. And it's such a burden that we place on those victims and those whistleblowers, but that's often the only way in which we can get any change. And we've seen that in the US context with hearings before Senate. We've seen it in the UK context with some really impressive campaigners and parents of victims, for example, speaking out and making a real change. 
but it's an awful burden to place on people. It is. I'm going to finish up by asking the question I always ask, and I think, you know, given how pessimistic you are, I'm actually quite interested to hear your response to that. Is AI going to kill us all? AI is not going to kill us all because we'll all have suffered such abuse and violence uh, before we ever get to that in the end. The real threat from AI is not that it's going to kill us. The real threat from AI is being felt every moment right now by women and girls across the country, as well as many others, but particularly them. Professor Claire McGlynn, thank you very much for talking to us today. No, thank you. The AI Interrogator is an Infosys Knowledge Institute production in collaboration with Infosys Topaz. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and visit us on infosys.com slash IKI. The podcast was produced by Yulia Dabari and Christine Calhoun. Dode Bigley is our audio engineer. I'm Kate Bevan of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. Keep learning, keep sharing.